story of how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Hebrew Poetry. I want to talk to you now about Hebrew poetry. Fortunately, most of our modern Bibles print poetry as poetry and prose as prose, and it's very important that they do. For example, prose is printed like a newspaper column with no gaps between the sentences, and every bit of space is filled, and the unit is the paragraph. So that's prose, but poetry has lots more space in it, much shorter lines, and is set out in verses. And the basic unit is the verse and not the paragraph. Now, why should that be important? Prose and poetry. And why is it important to have a Bible that shows you the difference? Because uh, English poetry is a little different from Hebrew poetry, so it doesn't always appear as clear to us as it should. When God speaks in prose, he is communicating thoughts from his mind to your mind. But when he speaks in poetry, he is communicating his feelings from his heart to your heart. So that should be a real key to unlock the Bible for you. When you read poetry in the Bible, you should be asking about the feelings of God. And there's a tremendous lot in the Bible about God's emotions. God is a very feeling person, and uh, we affect his feelings every day. This day we may make him sad or happy or angry so that we are affecting God's feelings constantly. And in fact, what we feel about God is not nearly so important as what he feels about us. So it's important to study poetry and prose. And I'm going to speak about poetry now because in the next talk we're going to look at the Psalms and after that Job, so we need to understand a bit of poetry in Hebrew thinking before we go any further. Most of the prophets write in poetry, spoke in poetry, which means that they were really speaking from the heart of God about how God was feeling. And that's very important. You see, you can be too intellectual in your study of the Bible. You can just get nice thoughts from it, but you need to feel God's feelings as well as think his thoughts. And the Bible communicates his feelings in poetry. Now, prose is a more normal, natural form of speech. Uh, when we talk to each other, we use prose. It'd be rather odd if we use poetry. It's, in a sense, artificial. It has to be composed. You have to think about what you're going to say before you say it with poetry, whereas prose you can just get straight into. For example, supposing I came home and uh, said to Enid here, I'm ready for my supper, wife. Oh, good, it's pies and peas. You've given me a dirty knife. I'd like a clean one, please. <laughs> and since there is no second course, I'll have some more tomato sauce. Now, that is, that is not the way I talk when I come in, you see. If I talk like that, it means I've done a lot of thinking about it before I come in. It is an artificial form of speech. It is not normal speech. It's special speech. Then why use it? Why bother to compose poetry? Well, the answer is it has a much deeper appeal to people. 
and therefore is likely to have a greater influence on them. It reaches the parts that prose can't reach. See, And that's why you find poetry in greeting cards, in Valentine cards, in birthday cards, and Christmas cards, because they're a heart message. And so we say it in poetry rather than prose, beginning to get a feel. That's a good phrase to use, actually, to get a feel for poetry. First of all, poetry goes deeper into the mind. It stays in the memory much longer. It's much easier to remember poems from your school days than the prose that you were taught in, isn't it? You can recite poetry you learned as a child. It stays in the mind. Most of us learn our theology from hymns, songs. Why? Because it's poetry. And that's why it's so important that you have songs with content. Uh, some of the songs today have little content, but if you really soak yourself in the didactic hymns of Charles Wesley, you're really going to have a lot of knowledge. But they're much easier to remember, so they go deeper into the mind, into the intuitive and artistic hemisphere of your brain, which uh, holds on to things better. And the second thing is they go deeper into the heart. They touch your feelings. Let me touch your feelings with a little poem. They walked down the lane together. The sky was full of stars. Together they reached the farmyard gate. He lifted for her the bars. She neither smiled nor thanked him. Indeed, she knew not how, for he was just a farmer's boy, and she was a Jersey cow. <laughs> now, see, now that poem, that poem touched two feelings in you. It touched your romantic feelings, and you, your heart maybe began to beat a bit quicker, wondering what was coming. <laughs> and then when it came, it touched your sense of humor and your fun. You see, now prose, if I'd said that in prose, wouldn't have had nearly the same effect. And then poetry goes deeper into the will. It can challenge you at a deeper level than prose to change your way of life. And one of the poems that I've quoted many times when I've preached was written by the famous army chaplain of the First World War, Studdard Kennedy, who became known as Woodbine Willie because he gave out cheap Woodbine cigarettes to the soldiers, and then became a vicar in Shrewsbury, a church that's now Pentecostal Assembly, but uh, I've preached in it and I thought of him. And his wonderful poem is called Indifference. Now listen to this poem for reaching, uh, bringing a challenge to your will. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They never hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only passed him down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained the wintry rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see. But Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. <laughs>
See, that poem really gets you. So that's why the Hebrews use poetry. It can touch the whole person, heart, mind, and will. And uh, therefore, God has used it a great deal. Now, the key to poetry is to make words beautiful as well as meaningful. That's what draws us to poetry. The words are arranged in such a way that they appeal to our sense of beauty, which is basically a sense of balance, of symmetry, of proportion. A beautiful person has well-balanced features, and it is this symmetry, this balance, that appeals to us in poetry. There's a beautiful balance about the words. The lines are the same length. Now, there are three types or three basic features of poetry which makes the word beautiful for us. First of all, there is rhyme. Rhyme. That's a big feature of English poetry, but not of Hebrew poetry. But rhyme is very popular with us. The balance of rhyming words. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. There's rhyming all the way through, and most nursery rhymes built, are built on rhyme for their appeal. John Betjeman uh, was uh, mainly building on rhyme in his uh, poems. Uh, now we have blank verse. <laughs> I never know whether it's poetry or not, but uh, if the words are arranged beautifully, it is, but it certainly doesn't depend on rhyme. Uh, and nowadays, the, the shock line has value. 30 days hath September, April, June, and November, all the rest have 31, is that fair? And a, a line comes in which startles you and breaks the rhythm and, and brings you up with a jerk. And therefore, all poetry depends on the irregularity as well as the regularity. The second major feature is rhythm. The beat also makes speech beautiful. Uh, we call it the meter, based on syllables. The limerick is classic case, and it follows the same rhythm. A limerick always follows the same rhythm. Uh, now, this is true of Hebrew poetry. Uh, a favorite rhythm in English poetry is what we call the 4-3 rhythm. The boy stood on the burning deck whence all but he had fled. The boy stood on the burning deck whence all but he had fled. That's 4-3 beat. And uh, that's very common in Hebrew poetry too. Uh, it's common in the metrical psalms in Scotland. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. For he makes me down to lie. Three. In pastures green he leadeth me, for the quiet waters by, three, four, three, four, three. Got it? And somehow that sticks in our mind. It's a rhythm that fixes the words for us. So that's the second thing. Now, with rhythm, it's terribly important that the emphasis falls on the right syllable. And again, I have to say, a lot of choruses today, the beat is on the wrong syllable every time. I give you just one. For all the good our Father does, God and King of us all. Now, did it, doesn't that jar? Because the beat comes on the and instead of God. And uh, that's one of the differences between good and bad choruses and good and bad poetry. And if the beat is not on the right word, it doesn't reach us. And you find in Hebrew poetry the rhythm is on the right word, but of course that's in Hebrew. Not so easy to put into English. The other thing that 
uh, enhances poetry is repetition. So we have rhyming, rhythm, and repetition. And the repetition of a word or a line makes it poetic. And Brutus is an honorable man. Do you know that speech? And Brutus is an honorable man. And Brutus is an honorable man. And somehow the repetition becomes poetic to us. Or bar, bar, black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir. Repetition of a, a word. And it becomes a balance. We've got two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, two arms, two legs. And so a double repetition of a word becomes poetic. It becomes balanced and symmetry to us. So especially twice repetition. So pleasant sounds are a key. And poetry is meant to be read aloud. You don't really get poetry if you just read it with your eyes. Which means that if you're going to use the Psalms, for example, read them aloud you're far more likely to get something from reading the poetry of the Bible aloud than just reading it silently. There's something very satisfying about the sound of poetry. It depends on sound. The content is nicely packaged. And poetry brings wonder into things. There's a sense of wonder in poetry that there isn't in prose. And wonder is halfway to worship. That's why the Psalms are all in poetry. I've got some versions here of a nursery rhyme. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are, up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky. Now you can kill that childlike wonder in that poem by reducing it to scientific terms. Here's another version I came across. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, I don't wonder what you are, you're the cooling down of gases forming into solid masses. <laughs> now, do you notice the childlike wonder has gone? Let's take it a step further. Scintillate, scintillate, globule prolific. Fair would I fathom thy nature specific. Loftily poised in ether capacious, closely resembling, resembling a gem carbonaceous. It's the same poem, but it's killed dead. It's gone scientific. And in a sense, prose is scientific language of the mind, but poetry is wonder language of the heart. There's a childlike quality about it. Well, now, all that's about poetry generally. And one other feature of poetry, and that is that poetry is visual as well as verbal. It constantly paints pictures in the mind that you can see. Images, imagination is very necessary to writing poetry. And it uses lots of metaphors, lots of similes, lots of images. That twinkle, twinkle little star, like a diamond in the sky. That's a picture. You can see the diamond. Or in the Psalms, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for God. There's a picture there of an animal with its tongue hanging out panting, as a deer pants, so my soul longs for God. Now, so far we've been considering English poetry, which is based on Greek and Roman, where the emphasis is on the sound. But in Hebrew poetry, that is not the case. The emphasis is on the sense. And that is because if you're not careful, the sound can override the sense. And you can appreciate the sound of poetry and get no message from it. You follow me? That, of course, is why the English are known for nonsense verse. 
Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll were masters of it. You know the Jabberwocky? Listen to the beat of this. Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogroves and the momroths outrabe. Do you get it? <laughs> Beautiful poetry. I mean, it's wonderful poetry to read. It's fascinating. But the message? What message? <laughs> you see? It's wasted. Now that is why Hebrew poetry put the emphasis not on the sound of the words, but on the sense of the words. And therefore we look always for the sense. That's why there is very little rhyme in Hebrew poetry. There is some rhythm, especially the 4-3 and the 3-3, three, three, but mostly it is based on repetition. And that is the key to Hebrew poetry. It is in fact repetition. We therefore call it parallelism. And it's based on the two-fold repetition. I've said we have two eyes, two arms, two legs, two of a thing, give it balance. And therefore, most Hebrew poetry is in what we call couplet form, two statements that belong together. And uh, these two statements are related in different ways to give us a bit of variety. Sometimes the second statement is the same all the way through the psalm. A statement is made and then, for his mercy endures forever. Another statement, for his mercy endures forever. So that's one very simple form of Hebrew poetry, to have a refrain as the second half of each couplet. But we may use one a bit later and shout it. It really is effective because a couplet enables you to have what we call antiphonal singing, which means two choirs singing against each other or to each other. And so one choir sings the first sentence and the other choir echoes it with the other sentence. And there's an echo and the psalms are very uh, meaningful if you read or sing them antiphonally like that. And one half sings or reads or says the first line and the other the second. You try it sometime. You see, in the New Testament they use psalms in worship and we should. Again, unfortunately, modern choruses usually contain no more than one or two verses of a psalm and therefore miss the context. And it's so important to take the psalm as a whole. So encourage your church to use psalms as a whole. And if you can't sing them, then say them. But read them like this as a couplet, one voice and then another. Now the three ways in which they are related to each other I've put here. This parallelism, it's, it's an echo. Take a typical verse. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? That is Hebrew poetry. It's the same thing said twice. Got it? So just let's spit right down the middle and then you say, where can I go from your spirit? And then you respond with, where can I flee from your presence? And you'll get the idea. All right? Did you hear the echo? You see, it's an echo all the time. And the second line echoes the first and gives a beautiful balance and symmetry to what's being said. And having said it twice, of course, it sticks in your mind. And, and the thought is there twice. When I'm uh, preaching in another language, I have to do it through what we call an interrupter uh, <laughs> who steals half my time. 
But uh, those who know English, of course, get the message twice, and they get, really get so much from it because they hear each sentence, first in English from me and then in the language from the interpreter. They get far more than the others who only know one language. So this repetition is very good for emphasis, saying a thing twice. It's very good for response, this echo, and it's very good for balance. But it's not just simple repetition. The second line usually takes the thought of the first line a step further. With me? And it does that in a number of ways. Let's take an example from Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Now you see, rebuking is just being told, but discipline is being punished. So the second line has taken the same thought a little further. You with me? Don't rebuke me, and then don't discipline me. And yet they belong together. They're poetic. Or take the next verse. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. See? Now, at first line, he's just feeling faint. But in the second line, he's in agony and needing healing. So once again, the second line has taken the first line a little further. Now, I hope all this isn't destroying poetry for you, because really, analyzing poetry is like taking a flower to pieces and pulling the petals off and looking at the stamen and so on, and it destroys it. Poetry needs to be experienced in its beauty, but I want to help you to understand what's going on when you read a psalm, why it was written and how it was written. Now, there are three major types of couplet, what we call synonymous, in which the same thought is said in different words. That's what we've been talking about so far. Then there is antithetic, in which the second line, as it were, contradicts or rather presents a contrast to the first line. And the balance is by way of contrast. So, for example, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Now, do you see the contrast? Sowing and reaping, tears, joy. So now the couplet has a contrast built in. That's what we call antithetic couplets. It is the opposite thought. So synonymous is the same thought, but in different words. It may be just simply repeated, like the first I gave you, or it may take it further, as we looked at. But both of those are really the same thought expressed differently. But now we have opposite thought expressed together. He who goes out reaping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Now that's taken these two lines much further. For now we have reaping and sheaves, and we have sowing and seed, and going out and returning. And then we have what we call synthetic couplets. And synthetic couplets add to the first thought. They don't repeat it, and they don't contrast it, but they add much more to it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now the second is the result of the first. The first is the cause, the second is the effect. And the 23rd Psalm is built on that pattern, what we call the synthetic. He makes me lie down in green pastures, that thought is not repeated, but he leads me beside still waters. And how meaningful those two last lines become when you study shepherding in the Middle East. You see, there isn't green grass everywhere. You can't just 
put sheep into a field and let them graze. You have to go up to 15 miles a day to find some green grass growing. And a good shepherd knows where the green pastures are. But furthermore, a sheep's nostrils are next door to its mouth, much closer their mouth than ours nose is to the mouth. The result is they can't drink unless the water is still. If they try and drink in troubled or running water, they will drown. They'll snuff, sniff their water up into their nostrils. So the shepherd has to know where there's green pasture and where there's still water. But those two things together create a picture of a shepherd who really knows his job and is able to do this for the sheep. You follow? Now that's synthetic poetry. So we've got these three forms of poetry, but many, many varieties within the, these forms. And you'll find that these patterns are constantly broken by irregularities just to keep the interest and to make it sparkle a bit. So sometimes the rhythm is broken and sometimes the pattern is broken. Sometimes instead of two lines, there are three lines together. Let's just uh, look at some of them. For example, here are three lines from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Now there's a three, a tricolon we call it. And so it's built up a, a crescendo. Ascribe to the Lord is the refrain and then different words are added in three lines. Or here's another from Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? How many are saying of me, God will not deliver him? Now you've got the repetition, how many, how many, how many? But the wording is different and each sentence builds on the previous one. Then sometimes there's an omission and a word is not included or a phrase drops out. Full of pictures, as the heart pants, I've told you that one, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. There's a picture of a tender father with his children. Then sometimes the lines cross over and the first part of the first line becomes the second part of the second line. Let's take an example. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And the way has swapped places. Got it? Well, now all this is just to help you to appreciate the Hebrew poetry much more. There is sometimes a kind of staircase in it. It kind of climbs up. For example, here's a little staircase verse. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. So that there's an introduction of something new in that second line, namely cedars of Lebanon. Sometimes the, the poetry is based on the alphabet. Uh, I'm trying to think of that pop song years ago. A, you're adorable. B, you're so beautiful. C, you're a cutie in my charms. No, I better stop. <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking at it. <laughs> now, that is an acrostic poem, and it's based on the alphabet. And many, many psalms are based on the alphabet. The first verse is Aleph, which is A in Hebrew, and second verse, third verse. Uh, Psalm 119, that's a very long one. It goes on and on and on. And each section of that psalm, every verse in that section begins with a new letter of the alphabet, all the way through. Now it's artificial. 
And some people say, well, I think we should be natural when we speak to God. I don't think we should be artificial. We should be spontaneous. We should just say what comes into our heads. Well, if you do that, you will only use prose to address God. See? But I think we should use poetry as well because that makes you think what you want to say. You have to prepare what you want to say. And that's how most choruses and hymns get written. Somebody sits down and says, what do I want to say to God? And they think about it and they prepare. And we use artificial speech whenever we sing a hymn together. But it enables us to sing it together. If I just said, now the next time of worship, each of you sing whatever you really want to say to God, we're going to have chaos. It then becomes individual worship, not corporate worship. And so the advantage of using poetry in worship is that we can say it together. Uh, there used to be a family tradition in our house. Our three children used to come and wake me up at an ungodly hour on a certain day in the year. And then they stood in a row at the foot of my bed, three of them. And then in a most artificial way, they addressed me in poetry. And after they'd done that, they then gave me a bag of their favorite sweets. <laughs> Now, this happened once a year, and they stood there and sang, Happy Birthday to you. See? Now, in a sense, that was artificial, the three of them standing in a row and all saying the same thing. Wouldn't it have been nicer if each of them had come separately and told me what they really felt and said, Daddy, I love you? Wouldn't that be nice? No. Because they would then not be my family. Do you understand what I'm saying? The fact that they would come together and sing together meant more to me because of their relationship with each other. Do you see what I'm getting at? It pleases the Lord when we say something together. But of course we have to use artificial speech. We have to use words that somebody else has written. But God loves to see us together, okay, standing in a row and singing to God but we're nevertheless expressing God. We're coming together to do this, and poetry enables us to do that. So I'm glad it's in poetry. And of course, Hebrew poetry is easier to use in other languages. It's easier trans to translate. Poems that depend on rhyme are very difficult to take into another language because the words in another language will not rhyme. I've tried, <laughs> and I like quoting a poem when I preach, and when I've got an interpreter, it kills it dead, you know, and it just uh, doesn't come across. So uh, the big advantage of Hebrew poetry is that it can be so translated. And even in English, the poetry comes across. The, the, the balance of the couplets come across. Well, do you think poetry touches God, God's heart as well as ours? I believe it does. And I believe King David knew that. And the prophets knew that they could reach human hearts better with poetry than prose. And I think that's why they used it, which means they must really have thought about what they wanted to say and thought in God's presence and let the Holy Spirit put what they wanted to say into poetry so that they could say it in a way that people couldn't forget but I believe it touches God's heart as well and that he likes poetry. There's so many things in God that appear in us. You know that God laughs, don't you? 
Well, Psalm 2 tells us that, so we can laugh. You know that God walks, so walking is the healthiest exercise we can take. You know that God sings. We're going to be looking at the prophet Zephaniah shortly. And Zephaniah is the prophet who tells us that God bursts into song over us and rejoices over us with singing. And that's why we sing. You know that God whistles, don't you? Do you? How many have read that in the Bible? Let me see. One, two, three, four, five, just six. You are reading your Bibles, aren't you? <laughs> Go and read the first few chapters of Isaiah if you don't believe me. You say, what translation is that? Any translation. God whistles so we can whistle. And maybe in a moment we'll do just that. If you can be ready to give us a note, Max. But we can whistle. And we can whistle for God. But I believe poetry touches his heart because it means that somebody's given a bit of thought to what they want to say. Somebody's really given a bit of time. How can I best address this to God? And somebody's produced a chorus or a hymn. That's beautiful. Later we're going to be singing a hymn that I've composed. <laughs> but uh, let's sing right now, Majesty, Worship His Majesty. But I'm going to ask all the men to whistle and all the ladies to sing. And if you're a man who can't whistle, then you can sing, but you're going to be very conspicuous. <laughs> and if there are ladies here who can whistle, I'm not going to forbid you to whistle, but it works best if the men whistle and the ladies sing. And we don't need the piano, we just need a note, just one note, because the whistling, we've got about uh, 50 or 60 wind instruments here, and uh, we're going to do it, all right? Right, okay, got the note? Let's just try it. We're going to whistle and sing to the Lord. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.